This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Matthew 1, 1 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word. Yes, even this is God's word. We're continuing our journey through the Bible that began in the fall of 2017, and today's a turning point in our journey as we start in on the New Testament. We've spent more than two years working our way through Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament, but today the camera angle changes as we get a close-up look at the individual about whom the Old Testament writers wrote. That's Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin our travels through the Gospels, I have but one goal summed up in a statement made by Ian Dugwood. He said this, profound change in our behavior always comes through a change in what we love most, not through external coercion. Profound change in our behavior always comes through a change in what we love 
most, not through external coercion. That means what you do is influenced by what you love the most. What you say, the words that come out of your mouth, are influenced by what you love the most. How you feel is influenced by what you love the most. What you think is influenced by what you love the most. So if we want to see change take place in our lives, the lives of our loved ones, our neighbors, our coworkers, our world, what we love the most is the linchpin of seeing that come to fruition. So as we get a close-up look at Jesus, my hope and my prayer is simply to see Jesus become your number one love, to see Jesus become your magnificent obsession, to see Jesus become your one consuming passion. So how are we going to accomplish that? Using a genealogy. Genealogies in the Bible are flyover country. Nobody makes a genealogy a destination. Nobody. You pass through them to get somewhere else. Well, we've got a challenge in front of us. And my hope and my prayer is that you are excited about this genealogy. My prayer is that God gives all of you genealogical tingles. As we look at this, I tell you what, if that happens, that is an evidence of God's work. So let's look at it together. The genealogy of Jesus points to him as the ultimate hero, the giver of grace, the source of significance. The genealogy of Jesus points to him as the ultimate hero, the giver of grace, and the source of significance. First, the genealogy of Jesus points to him as the ultimate hero. Now, there's some real rock stars in the names that Matt read for us today. While they all had blemishes, several would have enjoyed noble standing within the ranks of the people to whom Matthew wrote this gospel account. Take Abraham, Father Abraham, the patriarch. He took great risk in moving his family without knowing exactly where he'd end up. Uh, he risked it all. He, he left behind comforts and familiarities and conveniences in order to obey the Lord's call on his life. How about David? David's failures are well attested to, but that ought not to deter us from looking at all the great things he did. Taking out a nine-foot giant would have been legendary in the first century. Even more so are his conquests. Israel enjoyed its economic and kingdom pinnacle under the leadership of David. Hezekiah. Hezekiah put the high places out of business. Hezekiah is the epitome of an idle terminator. He got rid of them. In fact, there are only two kings of whom the text says the Lord was with him. Only two kings. Of all the kings in Israel and Judah, only two kings of whom the text says the Lord was with him, and that was David and Hezekiah. How about Josiah? Josiah, text says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He, 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 he instituted, he, he was instrumental in bringing about a reform within Israel's community, bringing them back to a scripture-centered way of life. He renewed the covenant. He was he's a great reformer. So by evoking the great heroes of the past, Matthew points us to the ultimate hero whom all these stories anticipate. All of these stories 
are pointing to Jesus. They're anticipating Jesus. They're foreshadowing Jesus. They're setting you up to see Jesus. This is Matthew's way of preaching, of illustrating what Jesus says to us in Luke 24 and John 5. Look at these passages. This is Jesus who speaks in Luke 24. He said to them, his disciples, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now watch this. And beginning with Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to his disciples what was said in those scriptures concerning himself. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In John 5, Jesus says this. He's speaking to the Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. The Pharisees are great at Bible study, but lousy at finding Jesus there. So Jesus is not an afterthought in Matthew's genealogy. He's not an unexpected addition to God's plan. Jesus is the goal of the Old Testament. That's why it's so important that you make Old Testament reading part of your daily routine. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's fleshing out for you Jesus. Let me give you some examples of how that works. Adam and Eve faced a test in the garden. We know that. They faced a test in the garden. And how'd they do? They failed miserably. Jesus also faced a test in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He was being tested, but he passed superbly. Jesus is the ultimate hero the story of Adam and Eve points to. How about Noah? Noah's family got to board the boat because God found Noah, singular, righteous. Noah's family was the beneficiary of Noah's righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Metaphorically speaking, another flood is coming. God's final and climactic judgment looms on the horizon. Only those who are part of Jesus' family get to board the boat. Jesus' family will be saved because of his righteousness, not our own. Jesus is the ultimate hero. What about Joseph? Joseph was betrayed by his own family essentially taken captive in Egypt. Years later, he finds himself second in command of that empire. When his brothers, his betrayers, come walking through the door, but instead of using his power to retaliate, he uses his power to preserve their lives. Sound familiar? Jesus sits at the right hand of God, but he doesn't use his power to destroy his betrayers. That's you and me. Instead, he uses his power to save his betrayers. Jesus is the ultimate hero. Are you obsessed with him? Jesus is also the true Passover lamb. In the book of Exodus, God told his people to sacrifice a lamb, put its blood on the door frames of their homes, 
That night, an angel of death swept through the land, killing the firstborn in each home, except for those homes that had blood on them. The firstborn in those families were saved by the blood of the lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. We're saved by the blood of the lamb. Jesus is the ultimate hero to whom the entire Old Testament points. See your one consuming passion? Jesus is not an afterthought in Matthew's genealogy. He's not an unexpected addition. He's the goal to which all of the Old Testament points. He's the ultimate hero. Second, the genealogy of Jesus points to him as the giver of grace. In the ancient world, genealogies functioned a bit like a resume. It was a vehicle for evoking praise of the person through the listing off of ancestors' descendants. Now, when you think about a resume, what is it? It's really an attempt to truthfully put forward the reasons why you should be considered for the position you're applying for. So uh, let's say you're applying for a position at an accounting firm. Probably whatever you're going to put on your resume for that accounting firm should make sense to that firm and for the position you're applying for. As a, as a professionally trained accountant, you might have a background in high school of working at a coffee shop. You might include it. You might not. More likely you won't because that's not information necessarily helpful pertaining to the job that you're applying for or the company that's interviewing you. Well, ancient genealogies acted like resumes. So if Jesus' genealogy is a kind of resume, what do we learn about him through what's mentioned in it? What kind, of, what kind of genealogical line would you expect the king of the universe to come from? Well, the list of names is quite a collection. There's some good people mentioned here, and there's some really troubled people mentioned here. Let's be honest about this. Jacob, for example, was a conniving twit. He's slick and deceptive and a a snake. He deceptively tricks his brother into all sorts of things. Now, David, we know well, while he's called a man after God's own heart, he's also an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon was extraordinarily wise, but somehow his wisdom didn't translate into curbing his polygamous lifestyle. Rehoboam was more interested in listening to his college frat buddies than his elders. In the genealogical run-up to Joseph and Mary, there are four women mentioned. The four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Of all the women within the genealogical line of Jesus, why are these four mentioned? Three of them have sorted past. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to trick Judah into impregnating her. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was complicit with David and engaged in an adulterous affair. Ruth was a godly woman, but as a Moabitess, she had her origins in incest. So if the ancient genealogy is a kind of resume, this isn't the most flattering list to be a part of. It's a bit unexpected, maybe even shocking, that the king of the universe would come from a line that looks like this. As an illustration, the Jewish king, Herod, deleted some names from his genealogy. Some of his ancestors were Edomites. And for someone who aspired to be a Jewish king, that would not have played well with the Jewish public. So he got rid of them. I'm not sure how you do that, but he got, he got rid of, the, of these names from his family line. 
the biblical writers leave in Jesus' genealogy names that Herod would have expunged. Now, ancestry is big business today. Some of you know that firsthand. You wanted to know your origins, your, your DNA, where you come from, all that sort of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a high interest thing. It's a high interest phenomenon today. I was at a uh, social gathering some time ago when we were playing one of these ridiculous games where you've got to talk about abstract facts of your life. Um, and I, uh, uh, there was somebody in my group who very proudly could say that they can trace their family line all the way back to Abraham Lincoln. And they were beaming as they were sharing this. <laughs> How many would take pride in being the descendants of deceivers, prostitutes, adulterers, and murderers? These are the type of people in Jesus' biological ancestry. And it's really good news. It's really good news. On the street, people have a view of Jesus that says, he's for the people who have it together. He's for the moral people, the religious people. They've got their acts together. Jesus would not be interested in me because I have a past, and you should see what my life looks like right now. But the very first words of the New Testament convey a vastly different message, an unexpected message. Jesus isn't ashamed to be associated with messy people. He identifies with them. Later in his ministry, we get a very clear picture of it. Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. Among those gathered there are tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, the social outcasts, the moral outcasts, the religious outcasts. Jesus' disciples are there with him, and when the Pharisees saw what was happening, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard them, and he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you have a past, or you know someone who has a past, or you think about people in our community who have a past, Jesus came precisely for people like this. Just four verses after Matthew finishes Jesus' genealogy, he introduces Jesus as the one who will save his people from their sins. Jesus came into our world with the express purpose of saving people like the ones in his own genealogical line. The genealogy is anticipating the kind of people he's going to save and rescue. He's not ashamed to be associated with sinners. He came to associate with sinners. He came to love them and die for them, which means... The church was never meant to be a museum for saints. It's meant to be a hospital for sinners. George Whitfield, who was a 1700s preacher, had a brother who had a, a messy, sinful lifestyle. But his brother showed up one day to listen to George preach. And as George preached, 
his brother's conscience was pricked and he groaned and he cried. He said, I'm a lost man and he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink. He was at a gathering. There was a woman there named Lady Huntington and after hearing Whitfield recount what had happened after he listened to his brother preach, she asked him to stop and repeat what he had just said. What did you say? She asked him. And he said, I'm a lost man. And she said, I'm glad for it. And he was puzzled. He didn't know why she had said such a thing. But she explained. She said, I'm glad you're lost. Because it is written, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. She was glad to hear him confess this. Because only those who know they are lost are the recipients of Jesus' salvation. There are aspects to our lives, current and past, that show our sickness and lostness. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not going to avoid you. He's not going to run from you. He so identifies with our sickness and our lostness that he came into our world through the line of sick and lost people in order to heal them and find them. So there's an implicit invitation contained within the genealogy. Don't try to clean up your act and then approach Jesus. Come to Jesus as you are. As you are. Come with your stuff. Come with your mess. Come with your sickness. Come with your lostness. And let him do what he is a savior, and discover his grace. Hearing that beckons us to make him our one consuming passion. Third, the genealogy tells us that Jesus is the source of significance. Purpose of a genealogy, one of the purposes of a genealogy is a kind of resume. Your name is highlighted, then the list of relatives is paraded out as a way of saying, Uh, This is why I'm worthy of repute. I'm associated with these people. Therefore, I'm valuable. I get my significance from them. But Jesus' genealogy puts all that in reverse. Notice the bookends of the genealogy, the repetition of the word Messiah. Verse 1, verse 17. It bookends the section, which means everything in between is meant to be read in reference to this. And it's for this reason Jesus' genealogy reads very different from from the others. All other genealogies say, because these people are in my family line, I'm significant. Jesus, in effect, says, no, because you're in my family line, you're significant. This genealogy is not Jesus' resume, in other words. You know whose resume it is? It's Abraham's. It's Isaac's. It's David's. It's all those mentioned here, and it's your resume. The traditional genealogy says, I get my significance from them. In this genealogy, Jesus says, you get your significance from me. I'm the Messiah. Now, our significance is always tied to something. We tie our significance to our careers. We shoot for for careers that carry the most notoriety and seek to be A-plus players in them. We tie our significance to our beauty. If I look like this or I wear this, I'll feel desirable. We tie our significance to some expertise we believe we possess. If if I display my mastery over this topic or this field of study, I'll feel valuable. 
We tie our significance to our moral and religious performance. We think if, if we know our doctrine, if we tend all these studies, then we'll feel reputable. But in all these cases, the tying of our significance is going in the wrong direction. It's going in the wrong direction. Terry Wardle tells a story from his childhood. It's helpful. Terry had a hand-me-down, fixed-up, big blue girl's Schwinn bike. And one day, his mom finally let him out to venture outside his own neighborhood, and he tells of what happens next. He said, I had broken free of the constraints of my little neighborhood, and now I was on my own to experience a grand adventure. I felt like a somebody, even on a big blue girl's Schwinn bike with saddlebags. <laughs> I crossed the railroad tracks and then rumbled over a small creek on a single lane. The bridge, made of some wood and steel, was no big deal, but on that day long ago, it became a bridge too far. As I began to cross, four teenage boys stepped onto the far side of the bridge. I intended to pass on by. They had other things in mind. One of the boys grabbed my handlebars. He spun my bike to an abrupt stop. He said, hey, where do you think you're going? Another boy chimed in, yeah, kid, where are you going? Instantly, I knew they intended to beat me up. I was petrified. I couldn't fight or break free to run. I stood there frozen. Suddenly, one of the bullies asked, what's your name? I answered him in a high-pitched, pre-adolescent, quivering voice, Terry Wardle. The three remaining teenagers got a bit silent and looked at one another nervously. Are you related to Tom Wardle? See, Tom was a much older cousin who happened to play defensive end on the high school football team. But I lied to them and told them Tom was my brother. They immediately backed off. One of the boys straightened out my shirt and said, hey, you know, we're just funning you, no harm, you're a great kid. If anyone comes after you, just let us know. We'll take care of you. And Terry said, that was a formative day for me. I learned that simply being Terry Wardle was not enough to be respected, accepted, and safe. I needed to be connected to somebody else in order to find that. That's the crux of the issue. Whether it's career, beauty, expertise, moral performance, none of those things will be enough. None of those things will be enough to be respected, accepted, and safe. You know why? Because at some point your career comes to an end. Maybe voluntarily or involuntarily. Your beauty will fade. Your mind will no longer work the way it once did. Sin will trip you up and you'll be enslaved to those you're trying to impress or win the favor of. See, if your significance is tied to something that can change, be lost or taken away, you're setting yourself up for enormous disappointment. In the genealogy, Jesus is saying, Brian, John, Sarah, Tracy, you can't tie your significance to some created thing. Something you've manufactured. You must tie your significance to me. So how do we do that? Well, what is a genealogy? It's a family. When we realize we've been brought into Jesus' family. And nothing can change that. 
Our status is fixed. It has a way of detaching us from other sources of significance. And it's not just that we've been brought into Jesus' family, it's that we've been adopted at a costly price. Because when you ponder the lengths Jesus went to in light of who he was in order to adopt you, it has a way of eroding other attachments. I heard a story about Andy and his wife. They traveled to a South American country to complete their adoption of a little girl. And at this time, this country was gripped by corruption, violence, political chaos. When they arrived, the people kept upping the price for the adoption. And when he threatened to take the matter to the U.S. consulate, this, this mysterious figure appeared out of the shadows, confronted Andy, warning him of, of vague but dreadful consequences. It was like a spy thriller, except Andy, when, Andy was the one caught in the middle of some sinister, dangerous plot. But he refused to leave without his daughter. And here's the odd thing. He'd never met her. Never met her. She was small, helpless, hadn't won any awards, hadn't aced any tests. She was just an orphan, condemned to a life of grinding poverty in a far-flung developing country. But for some crazy reason, Andy stayed there, negotiating with corrupt officials, spending oodles of money, squandering time, even risking his life to find and win this girl. 18 years later, there was a high school graduation party for a girl named Maria, his adopted daughter. At one point during the meal, Maria unexpectedly stood up and she gave a beautiful speech thanking everyone who had helped her find a better life. And it all started when Andy walked into that dangerous nightmare in an attempt to bring her home. When he finished talking about this story, What was interesting about this is that Andy's not a Christian, but he had discovered the heart of the gospel. God's loving, daring, persistent pursuit of people like you and me. Like Maria, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, but he still loves us, and he doesn't want to leave us behind. Instead, in the person of Jesus, God walked into a dangerous nightmare of human sin in order to save us and adopt us into his family. See, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the adoption process. It's Jesus walking into a nightmare to bring you into his family. It's the mission of Jesus. It's the mess he entered to make you part of his genealogical line. He wants you in his family. He wants you in his family. Do you see the lengths he went to in order to make that happen? There's no better significance than that. None. There's no better significance than that. Is he becoming your one consuming passion? Let's pray. Jesus, we stand amazed at your love for us. Though you are by very nature God, you did not use that as reason to stay away from the plight we created for ourselves. Instead, you took on the very nature of a servant. 
You clothed yourself in human flesh to live in our place the perfect life we could never live and die in our place the death we deserved. Jesus, you've adopted misfits. But now we can confidently say that we're part of your family, valued and loved. Jesus, I pray that you would make that real to us. Not just this morning, but in the days, the weeks, the months to come, as we get a good look at your life. We want to respond to what we've heard today, lifting our voices as a family, adopted into your genealogical line. We do this with joy. We do it with hope. We do it with love. In your name we pray. Amen.